Immigration Advocates Network podcast. Hello and welcome to the Getting Started With podcast for pro bonos, an Immigration Advocates Network project. In this series, we talk to experts in the field to get their insight on working with a particular immigration client subset. This episode's focus is on working with clients who are dealing with mental illness. My name is Dina Knott, and I am the volunteer and community education coordinator and an AmeriCorps VISTA at Immigration Advocates Network. Today, I'll be interviewing Christine Lynn, the Director of Training and Technical Assistance at the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies at the UC Hastings College of the Law, where she has previously co-taught and supervised the Refugee and Human Rights Clinic. Before joining the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies, Christine served as the legal director of Hong Kong Refugee Advice Center and co-taught refugee legal assistance clinics at the University of Hong Kong and the Chinese University of Hong Kong. She has also represented clients at an immigration law firm in San Francisco and served as a judicial law clerk slash attorney advisor with the U.S. Department of Justice Executive Office for Immigration Review at the Los Angeles Immigration Court. Welcome, Christine. Hi, Dina. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. To get us started, what unique obstacles do clients with mental health issues face? Well, first off, a lot of clients with mental health issues have difficulties obtaining proper treatment for their mental health issues, and that can be very challenging. They might have fear obtaining services because they lack immigration status in the United States or navigating the health system. They may not have health insurance or the ability to pay for such services. And also it's difficult to access linguistically and culturally competent health services, not to mention legal services. And this could be particularly difficult um, and exacerbated if the client is in immigration detention. And also depending on what the client's mental health issues are, they could have difficulties understanding why they're in immigration proceedings, why they're in detention, why they might need to see a lawyer, why they may need to be before an immigration judge. So my work is primarily with clients seeking asylum, withholding of removal or protection under the Convention Against Torture, which I'm gonna refer all together as fear of return claims. And these clients are seeking protection in the United States because they've either experienced past harm or they have a fear of future harm. So I'm gonna kind of contextualize some of the issues that come up with clients with these types of claims. It can be particularly traumatizing with clients with mental health issues to provide details about what happened to them or what they think might happen to them if they return to their home country. They may avoid talking about what happened altogether, which can present difficulties in finding out what happened in presenting their legal claim. Or in some cases, the person may not actually recognize or comprehend their fear of returning to their country of origin, which would defeat a fear of return claim. Also, in my experience, clients with mental health issues sometimes have difficulties providing a linear account of what happened to them. They may have memory issues. 
have difficulty explaining themselves in a coherent and consistent manner. These are all obstacles because the adjudicator needs to find that the client is a credible witness. But if there are differences between what they submitted on the papers and what they say in court, this can be very problematic. If their story changes as they're testifying either in court or before an asylum officer or other immigration officer. The one last thing that is an obstacle is that some clients with mental health issues have complex trauma. So it might not just be that the trauma from the reason why they fled their country, but then they might have experienced other things that happened to them that, hap that happened to them en route to the United States or happened to them in the United States. Thank you so much for that context. What would you say are the biggest obstacles that lawyers working with clients with mental health issues will encounter? What will that look like for them? One thing that I am very concerned about is being mindful of not re-traumatizing and re-triggering the client and worsening their mental health issues, especially since I know how difficult it is to get proper medical and mental health treatment. Another obstacle can be building trust and rapport with the client, especially based on some of their past experiences with lawyers, the immigration system, and other things that have happened in their life. Another obstacle can also be the competing health priorities of the client. Um, and their legal case, as well as some of the more immediate concerns they might have, for example, looking for a job, finding adequate housing, making enough money to make ends meet and feed themselves. So there could be competing priorities on top of the mental health issues and the legal case. And then if we're speaking specifically about the legal case, if a client has difficulties with Memory, as I mentioned before, it could impact their ability to tell things consistently. And this can be very challenging because I'd want to try to build the strongest case possible, but this could be very difficult if their facts are changing each time I'm talking to them. So it does take a lot of time and patience on both the client and the advocate's part in these types of circumstances. I imagine that the lawyer's priority is always going to be the case and the client has all sorts of things that they're worrying about. Like, I do think that, I mean, I'm prioritizing my client's health too. I think that's right. my utmost priority. And then because we are only assisting them in the legal context, there might be some organizations that are able to provide the wraparound services, but that's not the case for many legal organizations. It is prioritizing the applicant's health and not re-traumatizing, re-triggering them. But then also, if there is a deadline for the legal case, we need to figure out how to fit in all these other competing challenges as well. To what extent does working with clients with mental health issues change in relation to current events, different administrations? Um, how has the work, if it has, changed during the COVID-19 pandemic? 
Sure. So since the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of the work has been remote in terms of working mm -hmm. with clients. And this can be challenging if the client has mental health issues if you've never met the client before and need to build rapport virtually. That can sometimes be a bit of a challenge. Um, and in, in some cases, the COVID-19 pandemic has actually been a silver lining and that it has given some clients more access to being able to meet with the lawyers rather than having to take the time to get on public transportation to go to the lawyer's office. They can now do it virtually. On the other hand, there are other clients who may not have access to Internet and be able to do the virtual meetings as seamlessly as others. So there's kind of like two sides to that. And then the realities of living in a pandemic can also exacerbate mental health issues. And for clients that are in detention facilities, there have sometimes been outbreaks in the facilities of COVID-19. And so that's a real fear and also can cause anxiety and exacerbate mental health issues. Um, there has been misinformation about vaccines and the immigration community um, at times too. For example, we had a domestic violence client and her abusive partner also prevented her from getting vaccinated even though she really wanted to. And she actually did get COVID. Thankfully, she recovered, but the domestic violence also worsened during the pandemic because she was so isolated. Um, and then if that was not enough, there's been a backlog in the processing of employment authorization renewals. So the extension of her employment authorization has expired and has resulted in her being unable to get a job. So now she was able to at least get away from the abusive partner and found her own place, but she's having a lot of problems finding a job, worrying about money and making ends meet, not to mention she's feeling very isolated. And then you mentioned also the change in administrations. So the political climate of current events can also really um, exacerbate clients with mental health issues. Things are a little bit better during this administration, but they're also not rosy. And there's sometimes still some bad news about how immigrants are being treated in the United States which can also be very difficult for clients who have mental health issues. Thank you. What indicators should a lawyer watch out for that might mean a client has experienced trauma or is having issues with mental health? And how should a lawyer differentiate between mental health issues and what one might consider regular or even routine barriers to communication in immigration cases? That's a great question. First off, I do think it's helpful to pay attention to the client's body language in addition to what the client is saying. For example, if the client is clutching a backpack on their lap and their body seems really tense, that might be a signal that there's something going on there. Or if when they're recounting a difficult 
event that happened to them. They're closing their eyes, rubbing their temples and really looking like they are having a headache or difficulty talking about what they are saying, um, really paying attention to that, paying attention to if the client is restless, for example, tap it, tapping their foot around, playing with a pen, moving around a lot and fidgeting. Those are important things to um, look for. And of course, not, that doesn't always mean that the person has a mental health issue or is traumatized. It could just be that they're not feeling comfortable being in the environment. So as soon as you notice that, just really checking in with the client to see like what you can do to make them comfortable. For example, with the example I gave of a client clutching her backpack and her body seeming tense, she was also sitting at the edge of her seat. So I just asked her if she wanted to put her bag down and get comfortable. And that might help you kind of determine, is it that they're traumatized, have some other issue going on, or is it just, this feels like an uncomfortable situation and you just need to invite them to get comfortable. If you see a vacant, spacey look in the client's eyes or hear them saying things like, I'm having an out-of-body experience or I feel like I'm floating, this could be that they're dissociating from what happened to them and from what they're talking about. And that could be potentially an indicator of trauma. Um, and, and I think it is more of like observing your client and seeing if there's like multiple indicators of trauma versus a one-off thing that's happening. And again, unless you're a trained mental health professional, I wouldn't know how to diagnose a client. It's more of, oh, it seems like this person may be traumatized because I've noticed that there's these five or six things going on versus there's just one issue going on. Like they look uncomfortable. If it's multiple things going on is when I would be more concerned and trying to find mental health referrals for them and additional support. Um, some other indicators of trauma may be if the client has a fearful look in their eye. This could be that they're being re-triggered by something that's being discussed. If they talk about flashbacks, nightmares, trouble sleeping, panic attacks, you may also notice that the client is avoiding talking about certain subjects. They may actually miss meetings, withdraw from others, and avoid reminders or talking about the traumatic event. For example, one client told me how he wouldn't take public transportation at night. And then later on, I learned that that was because he was attacked in a public bus at night. And so he was avoiding that situation. There could be confusion over the dates and the orders of events. Confusion itself isn't necessarily always um, going to indicate that a client has a mental health issue. It could just be the passage of time. But again, it's just assessing whether or not there are multiple indicators of trauma. Certainly if somebody says things like they don't wanna live, that others would be better off if the client themselves were not here 
or they express any suicidal ideation, that would certainly be something that I would be concerned about and want to react and get the person's support. And some clients may actually just also express their issues through anger and may be hostile towards you or others. This could be a potential indicator of trauma. It may not be, but again, it's kind of like a holistic impression of your client. Clients may have flat affect and show little emotion when they are talking about something really horrific that happened to them. They may also have low self-esteem, feelings of guilt, self-blame, worthlessness, or in some cases too, they may feel a loss of control over their life. They may mention something about their appetite, either overeating or undereating. I wouldn't say that aside from suicidal ideation, any one of these indicators is necessarily something that would say, yes, this person absolutely has a mental health issue. It's more the existence of multiple of these indicators of trauma. And what I just discussed is not an exhaustive list of potential indicators of trauma. There's certainly more, but just some of the common things that I've seen when working with clients who've been traumatized and have had mental health issues. When would it be okay for a lawyer to ask a client about their mental health directly, if ever? I think this is about how you ask about the client's mental health versus whether it's okay to ask about their mental health. It may depend on the client and how open they are with you about their health in general. One thing is to take cues from the client in terms of their comfort level. I mean, I don't know that it'd be particularly helpful to ask a new client you've met for the first time straight up, do you have mental health issues? But asking generally how they are feeling might elicit helpful information. They themselves may say they've been anxious, fearful, or provide an anecdote that gives you a glimpse into their mental health. And then if you do wanna ask more directly about a client's mental health, it'd be helpful to explain why you're asking so directly and provide more context as to why you're asking why you want to know. It could be a follow-up to something they've said. I've approached it more from, for example, you mentioned you had a nightmare about X. Would you be willing to tell me more about it? And ask their permission to discuss more. And if they don't want to, honor that and not push them to discuss something that they don't feel like talking about. Yeah, that seems like a respectful way to deal with it. Are there other things that a lawyer can do to avoid re-traumatizing or otherwise exacerbating a client's struggle with mental health issues? Yeah, absolutely. The first thing is to really prepare yourself for the meeting and prepare yourself for working with somebody who might be traumatized. Know what the indicators of trauma are. And then really taking the time to build trust and rapport with the client before discussing really difficult things. So get to know the client on a more personal level. 
I also think it's really helpful before I have to talk about a difficult topic to give the client a roadmap that that is going to happen at some point so that they're warned and prepared. And then it's their choice if they would like to talk about it today or another day, or maybe sometimes it would have to be way further down the line, depending on how the client's doing um, mentally. I do ask the client's permission to discuss something, especially if it's more difficult. I also think it's helpful to empower the client to take breaks or to let you know if they don't want to talk about something to give them control. And sometimes I do this too to practice, to empower the client to take breaks so that if they're really feeling traumatized when they're in front of an asylum officer or an immigration judge, that they at that time also feel empowered to take a break, not just during their meetings with me. Really engaging and active listening, as I mentioned earlier, and paying attention not just to what the client is saying, but their body language, facial expressions, mannerisms, and other nonverbal communication. Um, checking in with the client if you are identifying some of those indicators of trauma that I would highly recommend um, all attorneys be familiar with if they're working with an immigrant client who may have mental health issues. And then I also like to have some grounding techniques to use during the meeting too um, and incorporating those into the meeting. So if you notice that a client is being traumatized, kind of bringing them back to the room, and it could be simple as just tossing a ball back and forth or grabbing a pen and asking them to describe how it feels to touch various parts of the pen. Um, just knowing some grounding techniques can be very helpful. You can also talk to your client about ways that make them feel more comfortable. For example, I've had clients who like to be wrapped in a blanket when they're talking to me about difficult things. So I had blankets in my office. Um, one really had a particular stuffed animal. So I invited her to bring the stuffed animal to the meetings so she could hug the stuffed animal. Sometimes it's sharing food, coloring, playing, squeezing an object. It really kind of depends on the client. But I like to just have a conversation with my clients to find out what makes them a bit more at ease when discussing difficult things. And then also asking the client if they have a plan when they get home, because they've talked about all these difficult things with you. What are they gonna do? That kind of lets you know where they're at and what they're thinking about doing to kind of care for themselves when they get home. Um, before I end the meeting, after discussing something very traumatic, I really do want to end the meeting on some sort of positive note and something that's not related to trauma. So it could be as simple as, um, for example, one of my clients was about ready to go and she had this pink backpack. So I started asking her like, oh, I noticed your backpack's pink. Do you like pink? And she chuckled and said she got the pink backpack because her daughter really likes pink. And so we talked more about her daughter and she was in a better 
mood and state of mind because she liked talking about her daughter than the difficult things we had talked about earlier in the meeting. So really taking that time to make sure your client has decompressed um, before they leave the, the meeting with you. What would you advise that a lawyer should do if they start to feel that they're out of their depth when working with a client that is struggling with mental health issues? That's a really great question. And I'm not sure I can give a one size fits all answer since it's really gonna depend on the situation and whether the lawyer is working alone with the clients or working in a team. Um, and then it could be anything from calming down your, your client or your own reactions to what you're hearing, um, which could be sadness, anger, or even triggering something that happened to you after listening to what your client says. So I think it really kind of depends on the situation, what you're gonna do. I think one thing that I would highly recommend is to really be as prepared as you can for all the situations that have come up, that, that may come up, um, and know where you can go for support. For example, I have a crisis hotline on my cell phone in case I need to call them in case a client's suicidal. Um, know who you might be able to call if something arises, like a supervisor, or another colleague. If you're feeling emotional yourself, I think part of the preparation for the client meeting is knowing that you could personally be triggered by hearing some of what the client is saying. Um, and in some circumstances, I do think it's okay to share with the client that what they're telling you is difficult for you to hear, and that's why you might be getting emotional if that's what's happening during the meeting. And then in other situations, it may make sense to take a break as it's appropriate so that you can get the support you need um, if you're feeling out of depth with working with a client. Um, I was actually supervising a law school team during one of the clinic classes, and one student who felt out of depth actually just said, help, during the meeting. So I took over the meeting for that part. And I mean, admittedly, it was a little awkward at first, but we were then able to transition smoothly. I'd recommend that a lawyer newer to working with people with mental health issues, though, work with somebody more experienced in the meeting, if that's possible, in case something comes up. And then if you're working with a team, you may also want to strategize how to signal if someone feels out of depth. For example, in a retrospect, I felt like I could have, instead of saying help, <laughs> but when the student did that, is if somebody feels out of depth, they can say, Christine, do you have anything else you'd like to add? And I know that that's my cue, you know, to step in because they need a little bit more support. Right. So what would you say are the most important things for pro bono lawyers who are new to this to keep in mind? Sure, so each individual client is different. So really taking cues from the client as the lawyer builds a relationship with the client. Um, I can't stress enough 
how important it is to educate yourself on trauma-informed lawyering and working with clients with mental health issues before taking on your first case, um, if possible, or at least at the very beginning of the representation. There are trainings and written materials on this topic, so I'd encourage pro bono attorneys to seek out those resources before meeting with their client for the first time or during the course of the representation if they weren't able to do so beforehand. Preparation is really, really important. Um, and I can't stress enough how important <laughs> preparing yourself for what you're going to do if something doesn't go as planned is also important to think about and have a strategy for what to do if the unknown comes up. Like you're not going to be able to prepare for every single scenario that comes up, but what do you do if something does come up? Like have a plan for that. Have a referral list of services, crisis hotlines ready just in case. And then also this can realistically be very emotionally exhausting work for the lawyer. Um, so part of the plan is also for the lawyer to identify how they're going to take care of themselves during this process. Okay. Um, now I have a question about uh, that I was going to ask you about vicarious trauma. I think you have addressed it a little bit, but is there anything else that you think that people should know about or keep in mind about vicarious trauma? Sure. So vicarious trauma can occur when someone who did not experience something firsthand takes on the trauma themselves. It could be the attorney, interpreter, adjudicator, or another person listening or reading about a client's trauma. Um, there are many of the indicators of vicarious trauma are also similar to the indicators of trauma in somebody who experienced trauma firsthand. And people may notice that they're avoiding articles about traumatic events. They're having similar fears to what the client has said, might have nightmares and anxiety as well. And so, um, as I mentioned earlier, just having a plan, a self-care plan to take care of yourself if you're recognizing that you're being impacted by what you hear the client telling you. As we wrap up, how would you advise a pro bono lawyer or another legal service provider to get started if they wanted to get involved helping immigrants with mental health issues? Sure. I would encourage people to educate themselves first on the topic, sign up for a CLE, review a practice advisory. My organization, the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies does offer trainings on the topic, and we also have some written materials available through our technical assistance program, and all of our trainings and materials are free. Um, pro bono attorneys and other legal service providers could also talk to other lawyers who've worked with immigrants with mental health issues so that they're more prepared to work with clients and aren't going in cold and have a little bit more context to what they're getting into before diving in. Thank you so much, Christine. Is there anything else that you want to say before we end the podcast? Well, thank you very much for having me. All right. Thank you.